Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. Coming up on Fast, Nike lower after reporting a big miss. The company's earnings call is just getting started. We are on it. We'll bring you all the late-breaking headlines. Also ahead, Disney under pressure as the company delays reopening its California theme park. We will break down the fallout. Plus, one top technician says it is time to double down on this red-hot sector. What it is and why the charts have them feeling so bullish. But we start off with breaking news on the banks. The Fed's stress test results are out. Let's get straight to Leslie Picker with all the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. The Fed is requiring large banks to limit dividends and buybacks after analyzing their resiliency during the pandemic. The Fed said that for the third quarter, it is suspending the firm's share repurchases, capping dividends, and allowing them to proceed based on a formula derived from recent income. Now, the largest banks had already ended buybacks, if you recall, through the end of the second quarter, but this actually takes it a step further, and the Fed will reassess those plans on a quarterly basis. Now, for the first time in the 10 years of stress testing, banks are required to resubmit their capital plans later this year to reflect the current environment. Vice Chair Randall Quarles notes in a statement that there is, quote, material uncertainty about the trajectory for the economic recovery and its impact on banking organizations. And not all Governors agreed to let the banks continue payouts, even if they're limited. Fed Governor Lael Brainerd said in a separate statement that she, quote, does not support giving the green light for large banks to deplete capital, which raises the risk they will need to tighten credit or rebuild capital during the recovery. Informing this decision by the Fed was a COVID sensitivity overlay for their traditional stress tests, where the Fed tested the bank's viability under three hypothetical recessions and subsequent recoveries, V-shaped, U-shaped, and W-shaped. The Fed notes that their scenarios are not predictions of the likely path of the economy. In aggregate, though, the Fed said loan losses for the 34 banks tested amounted to $560 billion to $700 billion. Aggregate capital ratios declined from 12% in the fourth quarter of 2019 to between 95 to 7.7% in the hypothetical downside. They did not break out the results of the COVID analysis on individual banks, but in the after hours, investors have been drawing their own conclusions with mixed results depending on the bank. Uh, mixed performance, depending on the bank. Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker with the results of the Fed stress test. A lot to think about there, a lot to think about in terms of how it affects the bank trade. But there's also this to think about. Take a listen to what David Ellison of the Hennessy Fund said on the closing bell just a few moments ago. They're really inserting themselves and and basically acting like they want to act in a sense that these companies are effectively nationalized. And we're seeing the the effect of that today uh, in what they're saying. So they're worried about the economy. They appear, they appear to be more worried about the economy than the market is. Again, I think we heard Powell last week say that he was worried. Now it seems like we're hearing that again. And this is going to be an ongoing thing. The banks are going to be battling this for the next couple of years. So they are effectively nationalized, according to this bank investor. Guy Adami, what does this all mean for the bank trade? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far that the banks are being nationalized, but I, listen, I, I respect the, the opinion on that. I, you know what it means for the bank trade? I don't think the value proposition of the reason you were getting wanted to be long J.P. Morgan was because of the dividend or their stock buyback. I mean, I don't think that's why you're long the stock. But I understand as a headline, this is somewhat shocking, although probably not all that um, surprising, quite frankly. I think a lot of people probably saw this coming. I think the bigger headline was the, the reason I thought the market rallied today in the first place was the relaxation of the Volcker rule to a certain extent. I think that's why banks had the big run. Now you have to wonder if the timing was somewhat coincidental. I still would submit the following, and you know, we've been pretty, pretty steadfast on this. You're looking for opportunities to buy a name like J.P. Morgan for that now second potential run up to 115. And we've done the math for you. I mean, 115 for J.P. Morgan is putting a 1.8 multiple on a $62 tangible book, and it makes a lot of sense. Go back and look where we traded up to a couple weeks ago, and that, to me, is where the market wants to go. I, you know, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think this is the reason to be bearish the broader market, although you know I am. Um, but I do think the headline is probably going to concern some people. Karen, you've been a longtime investor in the bank specifically, certainly not for the dividends, certainly not for the share buybacks. You already knew that they were going to suspend buybacks, at least for this quarter. So how do you factor this into your investment thesis? So, I, I mean, I guess it makes sense I, I, that they say, let's see how the year unfolds before we decide whether or not you're going to be allowed to um, to pay your dividend or at what level you'll be allowed to pay your dividend. So that sort of makes sense to me. I think what is going to be more important, I think, is how bad are the provisions for loan losses going to be in this quarter and how bad are they going to be given that we are having difficulty reopening, how sustainable those losses be going through throughout the year. So I had thought that the first quarter and the second, I'm sorry, the quarter ending in um, June and this next one, I'm sorry, March and June would be the worst quarters of the year. Maybe there's another bad quarter here. It is interesting to me, though, that the Volcker rule did come out on the same day. That, I mean, that's sort of like back to go-go times relative to, you know, the stress test. Um, but I think the story hasn't really dramatically changed today. We'll be, it'll be interesting when we see on Monday who is going to change their dividend? Um, you know, it would seem like Wells Fargo is maybe a, a likely candidate. Um, for, for Bank America, City and J.P. Morgan, the big money centers, I don't think they're moving much. I saw City up a little, J.P. Morgan down a little, and Bank America down a little. I don't think a whole lot has changed. To me, it still comes down to how bad will the losses be? Yeah. Goldman after hours is one of the biggest losers, down two and a half percent. Wells Fargo is down one and a half percent. Maybe some would argue that this has been priced into Wells Fargo for a while. Uh, Grasso, where do you stand on the banks at this point, especially given that the Fed is inserting themselves to a point where it has never been before? And on a quarterly basis, almost, you know, the Fed might have something to say in how the banks are, are distributing funds or using their capital. Well, first of all, I'll start backwards. Goldman Sachs uh, has the nicest chart, so it makes sense that that one would give back the most. But I think as far as the thesis of why you invest in the banks, it's a value thesis. So without a div and without a buyback, it's less valuable. So for me off the bat, that hurts. That's a headwind. But coming out of the financial crisis, there were tremendous headwinds. Everyone was nervous about the government taking over. Tremendous gains have been made since that level. So are the, is this the bottom and are you going to be able to buy these banks going forward? I don't know if you're going to see 
the return that you need to in this marketplace. So I'd avoid them. Tim? Well, I, I think you know the nationalization risk has always been on the. I don't think anything really has changed. I think the optionality and upside in banks is 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 there from a valuation perspective. But the fact of the matter is that stress tests have been a part of the banks' lives for the last ten years. Uh, whether they should or should not be, banks might have effectively been nationalized ten years ago. Um, they, you, you can't say I, I don't believe. And as someone that's invested in money center banks, uh, the capital markets activity over the last three or four years, I think, has been very important for banks, and I think it's been part of helping. Banks uh, to regain momentum. We spent a lot of time about talking about banks can't, you know, take to fresh all-time highs. But um, I think largely price action over the last couple of years has been uh, supported by buybacks. Today's announcement after the bell, uh, I don't think there should be any surprise or shock there. The fact that you've capped three third quarter based upon the average net of the last four quarters makes a lot of sense to me. That under the most severe stress test, a couple banks will face minimum capital levels, but that $700 billion in aggregate loans, I don't even know what the, the most severe stress test is. But um, to me, this is a positive. This has been hanging over the banks. I actually think net net, um, there's, there's a positive out of knowing more today than we knew yesterday. And I think banks will respond tomorrow. All right, let's bring in RBC's Gerard Cassidy. He is one of institutional investors' top-rated bank analysts. Gerard, it's always great to speak with you. Um, Thank you, Melissa. What, what is your take on what has come out, and can you connect the dots to the after-hours actions that we're seeing specifically? For instance, Goldman Sachs is down 2.5%. Citibank, Citicorp, excuse me, Citigroup, let me get that straight. Citigroup is up by 1.25%. J.P. Morgan's basically flat. Sure, I think what we saw today was some definitive numbers on the stress capital buffers. Now, as you know, the stress capital buffers is factored into the capital ratios for these banks. And all of the banks, with the exception of Goldman, which is why Goldman's trading down, their, their capital ratios that they submitted at the beginning of this testing period, which are fourth quarter 2019, those capital ratios exceeded the required capital ratios, with the exception, again, of Goldman. Now, granted, Goldman missed it by one-tenth of one percent, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, they could manage their assets to um, lower that ratio to get it in line. But what's important here is that the banks, once again, and one of the fellows mentioned it already, they've been going through the stress test now for over 10 years. The banks are very strong. they got strong balance sheets and plenty of liquidity. The uncertainty, though, comes in with these new scenarios with the COVID-19, the sensitivity analysis. The banks are going to have to resubmit the stress test under much tougher conditions, and that's where some vulnerability could come on the dividends later this year. Gerard, it's Karen. Let me ask you a question. I'm more focusing on the provision for loan losses. So what are you expecting to see from the banks relative to the very large provisions they took uh, last quarter? <clears throat> you, you put your thumb on it, Karen. Because of the new accounting, the CISO has current expected creditors, the bank had to front load their loss expectations earlier in the cycle. And in the first quarter, the number was dramatic. I think the industry, the number was $35 billion. That provisions, I'm sorry, that was for the top 20 banks, $35 billion. For the industry, it was over $50 billion. So I respect for the top 20 banks, we're going to see provisions at least equal to what we saw in the first quarter because the bank had a much better handle and the severity of this downturn today versus what happened in March and April. Now, once again, the banks are well capitalized. Unlike 0809, where they not only lost an enormous amount of money, they also had to recapitalize themselves. We don't expect that to happen. This is an earnings issue. 
they'll get through this, but that's also assuming they're going to have a recovery in the second half of this year. Given the banks have to resubmit their capital plans, Gerard, I'm wondering what you think of the bank trade for the remainder of this year. Is this a year that you have to simply look through because of this uncertainty of the, of the COVID overlay that the banks are going to have to go through? I, I think, Melissa, initially that is the trade. It's really who's going to come out of the credit cycle that Karen asked about. That's going to be the real trade initially. There's Bank America or there's a J.P. Morgan surprise on the upside in the third or fourth quarters with provisions that are lower than expected. So I think between now and the end of the year, it's purely a credit trade. But then when we get into 21, it's going to be more of a macro trade in the sense that where do interest rates go and where does the consolidation of the industry go in view of what we're experiencing today. Gerard, always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Gerard Cassidy of RBC. If I were a conspiracy theorist, Guy, or a skeptic, mm-hmm. both of which mm-hmm. I am, basically, Never. and you are too, all of you are, um, I, would, I would think that the Fed is, is making this sort of point-by-point call on dividends and buybacks because the uncertainty surrounding the economy is so great, and that would be negative for the markets. Well, yeah, I 100% agree. I, I couldn't agree more. And just go back to Wells Fargo's first quarter in the middle of, I think it was the middle of May. I mean, they took their loan loss provision was $13.8 billion. That was up 413% year over year. They're, they're telling you what you want to know, that you know what, they're concerned. Now, maybe it won't come to fruition, but clearly... They're seeing uh, what lies ahead. So it's not about the banks. The banks aren't the problem this time. It's the other end of this thing and what the consumer looks like when and when we get through it. And we will get through it. It's just a question of the timing. So, again, I think the banks are telling all you need to know. Everybody seems to magically think we're going to be back where we were. I don't think that's happening. And I think that's really scary for the market going forward. But I've thought that for a while now. Tim, you disagree. Well, I just think that this is all about a Fed that suddenly has a mandate that is out of control. Okay, so what is different today about safeguarding against things that might happen on the banks uh, out two, three months, six months, uh, two years, because we know that we're in a very uh, we're in uncharted grounds than 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 buying fallen angels in in the junk in the high yield or junk markets or or backstopping corporate debt or nationalizing every other part of the economy. I mean, this is out of control, but it's no different than the Fed that we've we've heard from for the last two years. So, so uh, you know, as much as the skeptics and the conspiracy-minded people that, that we all may or may not be, I don't think this is fresh bad news. I think this is totally in, in vain and in character with the Federal Reserve that's doing this in every turn. And it's a problem in the big picture of our democracy and, and our, you know, essentially in capitalism, I should say. Forget democracy. That's got its own issues. Um, but that's the Fed I'm worried about. Capitalism is dead. Uh, and this Fed is no different on banks than they are in every other part of the economy. Right. The price discovery that has been squelched because of the Fed, Fed's action, the zombification potentially of certain parts of the economy, that's all bad news, Karen. But here for this bank trade, with the Fed that has, is taking extraordinary measures, you also have the Fed that is injecting liquidity to the point where you know the banks won't fail. Yeah, I think the Fed has been a tremendous friend to the banks, right? Think about the crisis started and all these banks had revolvers that companies were drawing down, hundreds of billions of dollars of revolvers. And when the Fed said, we're going to be there in the corporate credit market, 
not only did those revolvers start to decline materially, but instead the J.P. Morgan Capital Markets Desk got to help them issue a bunch of debt to replace their revolver and get paid a fee on it. And that was because of the Fed. So the Fed has done an enormous favor to the banks that they asked them to maybe go slow on their capital plan for the rest of the year. To me, is that's very reasonable. I don't think they should be upset with that. I, 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 the Fed has been their friend. Yep. Let's turn from the banks to biotech. IBB Biotech ETF closing in on a fresh all-time high today. And your next guest says it is time to double down on this sector. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone, head of technical analysis at Strategus. Hey, Chris, what are you looking at? Hey, Mo, yeah, I brought along a couple charts. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about this biotech group, you know, in the context of talking about the banks being a repressed corner of the market, this is an unrepressed corner of the market. And I think the way it acts and the way it leads is suggestive of that. So let's go through a couple names uh, and a couple charts. Talk about the year to date so far with IBB. You know, down 25% in February and March, followed by a 50% move uh, off the low. I think the question is, is this too far too fast? Is this something that consolidates here? And I don't think so. I think when you put this in context of the bigger picture, this is a chart that is really just getting ready to go. This is the longer term chart of the IBB. And let's just keep in mind, this this went 40 to 140 in 2012, 2013, 2014. And then you had five years of nothing. 2015, dead money. 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, dead money. Only just starting to break out of this big base. So from a longer term context, I know it's up a lot this year, but from a longer term show here, this is something that is just beginning to break out. And then I think most importantly, when you talk about it from a relative standpoint, are you getting paid in this group relative to other parts of the tape here? The answer to that is definitively yes. And I think what's really important, if you look at IBB relative S&P, the improvement predates the virus. Before any of us knew about this virus, biotech was getting better. October, November, December starts to outperform. It continues February, March, April. It paused over the last month and now started to get back in gear. So I think from a relative standpoint, this is also showcasing the leadership characteristics that we want to see. So how are two ways you can play this if you want to own some of the individual names? One of our favorites is ABV, A-B-B-V. It's been trying to get above this 100 level for the last couple months. We think it will here. This is an improving chart, 50-day now, back above the 200-day, right on the verge of a breakout. Up through 100 gets you to 120. And the other name here, you know, big cap stock, Sarepta, widely owned, another really big base, been sideways for the better part of the last two years, just on the verge here of breaking out. It got above 150. That was a big level. I think ultimately what you're starting here is a really big move. So when you look at this group top to bottom, whether they're big caps or small caps, the whole group is strong. This is a group move and it's outperforming. That's what we want to own in this type of market. Chris, what is the term, the technical analysis term used to describe the long bases that then go to an upside break as a broad, oh, here broad, we go. Rob Dinagian or something like that? It's the old East Yamada, the bigger the base, the higher in space. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. One yeah. of the legends in the business. There it is. There it is. Uh, that term. I know Tim's a big fan uh, <laughs> of her guy. Well, yeah. tour of mine. Um, <laughs> these are stocks that haven't gone anywhere in five years. Right. Wow. And they're just starting to work. Okay. Chris, always good to see you. Thank you. Chris Verone, Strategus. Uh, Steve Grasso, where do you stand on IBB or biotech in general? Yeah, I would play it with the IBB. I think you, you can't be smart enough to understand whether it's going to be Gilead or Regeneron 
or Vertex or, or, or any of the uh, Biogen. So I would play with IBB so that your risk is muted. Your upside is muted as well. But I do think that you need that vaccine, and it is to sell the news because they'll all be forced to share. So not one of them is going to be able to do it. And I think it's going to be a combination of all of them. So I would play it with IBB, but I wouldn't play it for long. I think that this is more sell the news or sell it when it gets close to a vaccine. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be long winded in my long position in IBB. All right. Oh, we got some breaking news on the Facebook advertiser boycott. Dom Chu has got the latest. Dom. All right. So, Melissa, this is now the biggest company by far that is taking a quote unquote pause to its advertising on Facebook. It comes from telecom giant Verizon. Verizon now saying in a statement from its chief media officer, John Nitty, quote, we have strict content policies in place and have zero tolerance when they are breached. We take action. We're pausing our advertising until Facebook can create an acceptable solution that makes us comfortable and is consistent with what we've done with YouTube and other partners as well. So this all, of course, amidst some concerns, allegations, accusations that Facebook is turning advertising profits from possibly lax policing of things like hate speech or other platforms. So this is the biggest company right now. We'll keep an eye on it. Melissa, I'll send things back over to you. It's interesting, Dom, that that uh, phase, uh, Verizon, excuse me, is saying that they're going to pull it until there is a solution as opposed to for the month of July, which was what the boycott had called for. Yeah, and, and a lot of other companies already have done it, right? Most yeah. of them, like, you know, Ben & Jerry, some of the outdoor companies mm-hmm. like the North Face, Patagonia, others, Eddie Bauer, If you take a look at the stance that these companies are trying to take, this is a way of perhaps becoming more activist with regard to how they use their brand and how it's placed. But again, not putting a timeline on it is interesting here. It, it, It pretty much begs Facebook to respond in some way when a company like Verizon says they're going to halt all of it. Yeah, Dom, thank you. You Dom, we should also note that Verizon recently pledged to give $10 million in funds to organizations, including the NAACP, which which uh, basically proposed this boycott. Karen, it seems like the pressure may be building on Facebook if a company of this size is saying we're going to pull for an indefinite period of time these ads until you do something. Right. It gives cover for other big companies to do it. I mean, yeah, the pressure is really on Facebook to craft some sort of statement or solution that sort of allows them to thread the needle, which... I think they will probably do. I don't know if it's going to take more big Verizons of the world to put that pressure on them, but I think I think it's unavoidable for Facebook at this point. Yeah, guy. It's not bullish. Uh, we said it, we mentioned Tenzing Norgay the other day, if you recall. I mean, we. I mean, when was the last time we mentioned him on the show? And we the said other day. it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of. But I mean, I mean, more people are going to line up. It's just a matter of time. And Facebook's going to have to address this. But they find themselves in an extraordinarily difficult position that they put themselves in, by the way. And you can't make a bullish argument for the stock on the back of this. We've said when advertisers start to leave, that's when you have to be concerned. Well, guess what? Advertisers, advertisers starting to leave. And I think it's just a matter of time before people start to leave as well. And getting back to biotech quickly, Sarepta absolutely has broken out to the upside. IBB has absolutely broken out to the upside. And the verification mm-hmm. will come in the form of Amgen if you get a close above 245. And by the way, the Louise Yamada indicator that you mentioned is also the spinal tap indicator Whoa. that proper decorum prohibits me from mentioning.
Back to you. It's a basket of information I don't know if I'll ever use. Um, Facebook shares, by the way, are, are lower in the after-hour session by about 1.4%. Um, Steve Grosso, we've always mentioned the chicken and egg. That's where the audience is. That's where the people are, the eyeballs are. And so, therefore, that's where the advertisers will go. It seems like we're breaking that cycle potentially here. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the stock, the stock has, has really been impressive in light of all of the headwinds. And I think uh, with digital advertising, those numbers are going to be down for Google. And I think that this is the time where Facebook is actually, their numbers are going to actually look better. And uh, unfortunately, you'll have advertisers leave. But I think ultimately, they will come back. So I, I think it'll be short-lived. I think Facebook will thread the needle with some sort of commentary, but the stock has been unreal and the reach and scope and the breadth of the name is just something that is, uh, it, it doesn't exist other than Google or Amazon, but it's on the top of that heap. So I think the stock will be just fine. The context, though, that you had mentioned, Grasso, in terms of the stock run being unbelievable, I mean, that is the context in which we are seeing a potential or, or the, the conditions for a drawdown, right? I mean, if it was priced for everything to go, go right, pretty much right, and then all of a sudden we see a Verizon, we know that a host of other companies out there in the S&P 500 have donated millions of dollars to organizations like the NAACP. They risk looking like hypocrites if they don't follow in Verizon's footsteps at this point, Tim. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think uh, Facebook is going to spontaneously combust like Spinal Trap's drummers did. Um, but I do think this is a big deal. I, I, I think this is, you know, Verizon's one in every 10 ads, it seems, on TV, as opposed to North Face, who we never see. I, I think this is sending a major message. And as you pointed out, without a specific timeline, but more a set of conditions. Uh, and I think it's a big deal. Stocks run a lot. That's, a, that's not great for the stock. Well, let's let's say, Karen, that there are people who pull their ads, other companies who pull their ads from Facebook. Hey, it's Steve Grasso. I got you. Does that? Hey, Steve Grasso, mm-hmm. you're on TV. <laughs> you're making a phone call. Anyway, yeah. Karen, <laughs> do they reallocate those funds to a Google, yeah. for instance, which you also own? I, I I think Verizon is begging Facebook to give them some cover. That's where they want to spend their money, right? The way they positioned the ad, the way they talked about it, you know, they're begging Facebook to do something. I don't know where, where I mean, I don't think it's going to TV. I guess Google, uh, I don't know, maybe Snapchat. I don't know. I think, uh, but Verizon is begging them to do it, to give them some cover for them and any other advertiser that's in a similar situation as they. All right, coming up, we're all over Nike's earnings move in the after-hour session. We're listening on the call. We'll bring you all the headlines next and later. Not loving it. Why McDonald's is taking its test run of Beyond Meat products off the menu. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Breaking news in the IPO market. Let's get back to Leslie Picker. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. This one's pricing for Albertsons, the supermarket chain. I'm told by two sources uh, it's priced its IPO at $16 a share. That is below the range it had been marketing to investors, which was $18 to $20 per share. They're also uh, limiting the amount of shares that they plan to sell to investors to 50 million shares, down from 65.8 million shares. Those shares are actually being offered by the current shareholders, so the proceeds won't be raised by the company. Uh, Now, that $16 per share uh, implies an enterprise value of about $16 billion. Half of that, $8 billion, is debt. So interesting that uh, the current shareholders, Cerberus is one of them, they've invested in this company for 14 years, but they are finally getting their payday, uh, albeit at a lower amount than they initially planned to to sell, Melissa. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker with the latest on Albertsons. Guy, you've been uh, on board the Kroger train. Yeah, and it's interesting. They they tweaked their dividend today. I think they raised it slightly. Good for them. Kroger, that is. It's going to be interesting how Kroger reacts to this. You you could probably make an argument this is great for Kroger or or it's not based on the fact that there wasn't demand and they had to lower the price Albertsons. I still think if you go back and look at that Kroger quarter on June 19th, that was a very good quarter in my opinion. Uh, I was surprised at how poorly it traded after the fact. I still think valuation-wise, Kroger is appealing here, and I would my trade off the Albertsons is to be long KR. Steve? Yeah, I mean, we've only started looking at supermarket stocks uh, after Corona and after shelter in place, and, and Kroger has a huge number on fuel as well. So once the economy really starts... People start getting back in their cars. Then I think you'll start to see Kroger really perform. Albertsons, I don't like the debt level. I don't think they're firing on all cylinders. And I think, I, I'm, I'm a little bit suspect of the timing of all of this. So I'm not a big fan of that. All right. Coming up, the risks to the reopening. What option traders are saying the delay at Disneyland could mean for the stock. But first, shares in Nike plunging after reporting a big miss. We've got fresh comments from the conference call. We will bring them to you when Fast Money returns. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Nike. Shares of the sneaker giant falling in the after-hour session down about 3%. Right now, the company's conference call underway. Let's get to Sarah Eisen with all the details. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Executives on the Nike call right now painting a pretty bullish picture about the future, making it clear this big miss this quarter on sales, which were down 38%, and the swing to an earnings loss is an in-the-rear-view mirror. China is the key here. That's what supercharged Nike's growth in recent quarters and years. And all investors wanted to know coming in is how has it come back as China has reopened. John Donahoe, the CEO, made it clear the momentum is still there. Listen. 
return to currency neutral growth. Over the quarter, we've strengthened our consumer connections and translated them into meaningful relationships. For example, in March and April, China's monthly active users on the Nike training app increased over 350% since the beginning of the calendar year. This direct engagement with consumers allowed our business in China to return to growth in Q4. The return to growth, key there. Donahoe also, also talked a lot about digital growth for Nike overall, which did rise 70, 75% in the quarter. Donahoe said it's continuing to look strong here into June, even as stores are reopening around the world. And executives are doubling down efforts around the digital business. They see particular opportunity in women's and in kids. Now, Donahoe's own experience running eBay and ServiceNow, no doubt helping on those digital efforts. He also talked about strength they saw in the quarter for Jordan brand, the response to the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan that ran on ESPN. said so that was also a lift. Now, keep in mind, when you're looking at these numbers, 90 percent of Nike stores were closed in eight weeks of the quarter. Currently, Nike says 90 percent of stores around the world are open. So what's the risk here? Nike's clearly not immune to the global economic slowdown and the pain being felt across retail. Still does a lot of business with the footlockers and department stores of the world. But Nike is faring better than most in retail. And one sign of that, Donahoe on the call just confirming that all Nike employees were kept on the payroll with no salary cuts during this period. Melissa, Nike has about 75,000 or more employees. The other fact is the stock has been on a tear. It's up almost 70 percent from the March lows. Five analysts raised their targets just this week. So have to wonder how much of this optimistic picture that they're painting is already being priced in. Yep. Sarah, thank you. Sarah Eisen with the latest on Nike. Tim, you're an owner here. What do you make of the quarter? Yeah, and, and I think I even said buy it into the numbers. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's a pullback on high expectations and a, a significant stock move into it. But the fact that uh, Mr. Donahue is talking also about being 50 percent DTC digital sales uh, in the short to medium term, for sure, but that they're going to be two years ahead of their plan to be at 30 percent DTC sales. Uh, the Jordan brand in China up 50 percent year over year. This is now a billion dollar brand. Uh, China is such an important market for these guys. I, I would agree. Uh, we know what the the, the cyclical uh, and, and the, the COVID-19 headwind is. But for a company who needed to show both innovation, strength in China, and, and continues to dominate on margins because of their business model, um, I, I don't know why you run too far away from this one, and I, you should be buying weakness. What do you think of this, Grasso? And I'm curious because the last quarter that Nike had reported it was held up as sort of uh, proof that maybe things won't be so bad because China was, in fact, bouncing back. And this time around, it was a disappointment. You know, I think the, the market is concerned on Corona as the environment, and it's taken over the macro story. And Nike stock has actually performed quite well. And I, I love the chart. The start, chart still looks constructive. I think growth is still intact. And when you're talking about returning to growth in a matter of a quarter, that's unheard of in this marketplace. I like the fact that 90% of their stores are open I would still be a buyer of Nike on any weakness that you see. Hmm. DTC, Karen, obviously very strong. What does that do to the footlock? I mean, that would be bad news, I would think, to uh, the footlockers and, and a lot of those sort of middlemen retailers. 
Right, and sort of it's circular. Some of the bad news for Nike was the, you know, the trouble with the footlockers and the exporting goods of the world. There was one thing that, that I thought was really interesting in the release, though. The gross margins were down a lot, which obviously is a bad sign. But they did say that uh, higher full, uh, full price average selling. So um, that's a good thing. When your average selling prices are higher, they had a number of costs that are COVID-related. I think those will dissipate but that your customer will still pay a higher average selling pr price than before, I mean, that just shows the strength of the brand. So I think the, the noise of, of COVID will eventually go away. So, I, I, I mean, it, ugly quarter in some ways, but this is a powerful brand. I'd be a buyer. Okay. They mentioned inventory obsolescence. That's a term that I never heard before. You don't, you don't want to be obsolete ever, <laughs> although... Quite frankly, most people out there, if they were to ask, they would say Gaiadami is absolutely obsolete. You know, with that said, you have a huge inventory build that's going to take time to, to work off. Karen mentioned gross margins, expecting 43% came in 36%. That's not good. Steve mentioned the chart. I get it. But you go back and look, and if the great Carter Braxton Worth was here, he would mention that you know, potential for a double top, the previous all-time high in January, 105, traded back up there recently, seemingly have failed. But to Tim's point, you're looking for a place to buy it. And if you go back and look where we sort of went sideways for a while recently, comes in the form of 89.90. I think you can get a shot to buy it there. And if it does get there, you buy it with both hands, in my opinion. All right. Coming up, the risks to the reopening, what options traders are saying uh, the delay at Disneyland could mean for this stock. And later, things are getting spicy here on Fast Money. The one stock getting a big boost because we are all cooking at home. We'll tell you what it is when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you're just joining us, we've got big news out on Facebook. Verizon has announced it is pulling its ads from the social media site. It's officially the largest company to boycott Facebook over its content policies. Facebook shares are hitting after-hour session lows. They're down right now by one and three-quarters percent. This is a story we will continue to follow for you. Meantime, coming up, mayhem at the Mouse House. Options traders are betting there is more downside ahead for Disney shares. We'll break down that trade next. Plus, a tale of two food stocks. One is sizzling higher, the other getting burned. We'll belly up and break down the moves in these names. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares under pressure today after the company delayed the reopening of its California parks indefinitely. That announcement cost Disney more than one and a quarter billion dollars in market cap at today's lows. And options traders are betting that the pain could be just beginning. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So Disney traded well over two times the average daily put volume today and puts outpaced calls significantly. In fact, nine of the 10 most active options in Disney were all puts. Most of the opening activity was concentrated in the August 100 puts, over 10,000 of those traded versus about 2,600 in open interest for an average price of about $3.85. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that Disney could fall further below that $100 strike price by at least the $3.85 per share that they're paying for those. One might assume that they're targeting those March lows. And I would point out that put volume has actually been quite elevated for a couple of weeks now as we've seen some of this reopening news and there's been maybe not such a positive result in terms of virus uh, cases coming out of that, that uh, some of this bullish, uh, the bearish activity actually preceded today's announcement. Here's a question for you, Steve Grasso. Is the fact that Disney closed down by just six-tenths of a percent actually good news? I mean, I, I would have thought when you first heard the news, you think, oh, the stock is going to trade down because it traded up 
on the reopening plans um, and also take along with it other theme park operators, other sort of these reopening trades like cruises and airlines, et cetera. And most of them finished higher. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could look at that when a stock when a stock stops going down on bad news, that's a positive for it. But Disney has been a perfect range trader. It looks like it wants to trade between 100 and about 125. The problem I see with Disney is that it's not the same as when you're getting on a plane and you could suck it up for two or three hours with a mask on to get someplace. This is the venue you're going to. So I don't think families should be excited even when it does reopen and parks are a huge number in their revenue. So I'd be negative on Disney, but watch that par level, that $100 level. Yeah, they're also, by the way, delaying the, uh, the launch of, of Mulan, uh, which could bode well, bode poorly, excuse me, for the movie theaters right out there, Tim. I mean, AMC finished down by more than 10 percent today. Crushing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to get to Mulan and, you know, it's going to be a sad day in my house. But um, no, look, I, I, Steve, Steve's pointing out like 38 percent are theme parks and experiences. And this is a big deal. And it's been well flagged in the stock. Um, I, I think the stock, first of all, if you look at the chart, you know, I want to see this hold around 105 or or you probably start to test down lower. I'm, a, I'm an owner of Disney. Uh, I'm not trading it aggressively in here and I'm a buyer of weakness. Uh, but it, the, the reality is what we're seeing on resurgence in COVID-19 is is not faring well for this stock. And the reality is it's going to be a much slower move back into theme parks, even though uh, the reason I own Disney is because there's four distinct different businesses there that are you know largely very healthy, uh, if not set back by this. So I think you're buying weakness. And of course, Karen, this raises questions surrounding any reopenings and whether it, it matters if if the government's actually imposed a lockdown or if the companies themselves pull plans to reopen, we've seen this here with Disneyland in California now. Disney World is being questioned by its workers in, at Disney World. And then you've got Apple closing some more stores in Florida this time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, companies are not waiting for guidance um, from the government. They're listening to their customers and their employees, and that's who their constituents are. So. I th- it wouldn't be shocking, right, if they delayed further openings. And, you know, also we have ESPN now. Uh, we have sports that maybe get delayed again or maybe more cancellations. I don't know. The other thing, though, about Disney stock is, remember, this company has a lot of debt now, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it, I mean, they can handle the amount of debt, but in terms of valuing the company, you've got to include a lot more debt now than there used to be. So I think you can wait and get a chance to buy a little lower. All right. For more options action, uh, be sure to tune into the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And by the way, after that, you can stick around for a bonus hour of Fast Money. We're breaking down the five biggest stories of the week. We like to call it Fast Five. That is tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, we've got a stock combo for you. McCormick is sizzling. Beyond Meat getting burned. What is cooking in both of those names? We'll dig into those stocks coming up. And later on, Mad Money. Jim's talking to the CEOs of Salesforce, Brunswick, and Winnebago. Wow, what a show. Don't miss those interviews. Top of the hour on Mad Money. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of McCormick spicing things up and surging on an earnings beat. The quarantine, stay-at-home cooking craze, helping the bottom line. Um, Guy, what is cooking here? They say that at-home sales, that is helping to offset uh, in the commercial business, the industrial side of the business. Well, nobody likes a spice rack. (laughs) 
much as I do, Mel. As you know, and we've actually talked about this stock on the show prior to all this craziness going on. And I think people are getting in touch with their, um, what's that woman that used to cook? Uh, Julia Child side of things. Look at me with the poll. Their ridiculous quarter. I mean, the EPS beat was outrageous. The, the margin beat was outrageous. The knock on the stock is valuation doesn't seem to matter. I can understand why you'd want to take profits on the back of this, but I still think you stay long this name. I mean, nobody likes, as I mentioned, a spice rack specifically, a nice paprika <laughs> as much as I do. It has to be fresh, though, because paprika can go stale very, very quickly, FYI. Oh, yes. Um, I was taking a look I mean, at the McCormick earnings deck. And these are the stats that jumped out at me. 16% increase in household penetration and an 11% increase in, in repeat buyers. And they're also able to offset price inflation, inflation from the supplier level by raising prices themselves, Steve Grasso. That seems like a recipe for good earnings. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. So if they could, if they could bridge the gap during this corona environment, and the, stock, and the stock has absolutely performed well, I think that you're okay staying long because we will start the economy eventually, and then it should be firing on all cylinders. So I would stay long it, but I do hear what Guy's saying. The chart looks like it's a little bit toppy here. Mm, all right. Much different story here for shares of Beyond Meat. They got burned today as McDonald's ended its meatless burger trial. The company later coming out saying this was as expected. This was supposed to happen. The, the trial was supposed to end. So it did pair its losses here, Karen. Um, but what do you make of a stock like this? The trend seems to be here to stay for now. <laughs> I'm not sure what you think about valuation. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Valuation. The trend seems to be here to stay. Um, obviously, they have... They were out first in the biggest way, so they've got a lot of partnerships, which is great. We'll see what happens with this McDonald's Canada. I don't know. But um, I just can't help think, though, that we're going to see a lot of competition, even though I really believe in the secular story. We're going to see a lot of competition. And the valuation, I just I don't even know how to – I can't get my head around it. You know, it's interesting is that in the initially they were saying what is challenging for them is to sort of get their placement in the refrigerator aisle, right, because – the supermarket uh, distribution system is so, so difficult to break into. But now with direct-to-consumer at home, Tim, I, I'm wondering how that might change and change in Beyond's favor. I, you know, it, I think fighting for shelf space is critical to restaurants, but it, Karen, it's all about competition and valuation, and, and that's the story here. I wouldn't chase it. All right. Up next, you've got your final trade. Yeah, McDonald's may be dropping beyond, but I think they have plenty of their own products. And again, this is about margin for them. 175 is level to watch. Long McDonald's. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, of all this bank news today, actually the one most interesting to me for tomorrow might be Wells Fargo. If it trades down, it would be good for them, actually. I think good for their stock if they were to cut their dividend. I like the new management. So Wells Fargo. Steve Grasso. Sonos, I bought it today. I know Citron put a $30 price target on it a couple of days ago. It does look like a takeout candidate for me for Apple, Google, or Amazon. Sonos. Guy Dami. Mel, I'm not a fan of Rosemary, the spice, not the name, by the way. And I think one man's pleasure, another man's pain comes in the form of Snap versus Facebook. 
<laughs> All right. Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.